Welcome to the History of California podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today we have on a special guest, Miroslava Chavez-Garcia. Miros is a professor of history at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and holds affiliations in the departments of Chicana Chicano Studies and Feminist Studies. Miros is the author of Negotiating Conquest, Gender and Power in California from the 1770s to the 1880s, as well as States of Delinquency, Race and Science in the Making of California's Juvenile Justice System. And Miros's most recent book is called Migrant Longing, uh, Letter Writing Across the U.S.-Mexico Borderlands. Uh, that book is a story of migration, courtship, and identity as told through more than 300 personal letters exchanged across the U.S.-Mexico borderlands uh, among family members and friends. Most recently, the book was selected as the 2019 Choice Outstanding Academic Title, and in 2019 it won the Western Association of Women's Historians' Barbara Penny Canner Award to honor the book that illustrates the use of a specific set of primary sources. This is a great interview, and we talk uh, quite a bit about uh, that first con uh, book, uh, Negotiating Conquest, and the different conquests in California's history. There are two main ways you can support this podcast. First, um, you can make a financial contribution through Patreon. Uh, that really goes a long way to help uh, the continuation of this podcast. Or you can give us a rating and review uh, on Apple Podcasts or any of the other platforms where you listen. It really does matter, and it helps. Let's go meet Miros. So we've been talking in the podcast um, about conquest and we're building towards uh, the Mexican-American War. And I want to spend a few minutes just talking with you about uh, terms. Um, you know, we, there's different terms we use uh, when one country or one nation or one group um, moves in. Uh, to another territory and either takes land or pushes another people out. And I, one of the terms that I hear used a lot in historical circles is, is annexation. Um, why do you think the word conquest is a better way to describe uh, what happened uh, between the United States and Mexico? And how many conquests were there? And, um, and why is that term the best fit for describing the kind of the politics of what happened. Right. I think annexation, to me, that term really robs the historical significance of what happened. I will say it sanitizes the experience, I think is how I would put that. It leaves out a lot. Annexation sounds like we just attach something, right? Like yes. it just came and locked into place. Mm -hmm. um, and so right. that, yeah, to me, that sounds, I don't use it that often. I use it sometimes because I like to change my word usage, right? Change yeah, so yeah. Kind of not sound so um, repetitive. But right. I think conquest is uh, a good term to use because, well, first we need to define it, right? And I think that's important to define the term. Um, uh, one way that I would define that term One way that I would define that term is by thinking about it as this uh, complete or near complete domination of, in this case, of a, a territory, a land, a region, a nation, right? In this case, if we're, looking, if we're talking specifically about the U.S.-Mexico War of 1846 and 1848, 
between 1846 and 1848. That is certainly um, the conquest of northern Mexico or conquest of Mexico that led to the um, secession of the northern territories of Mexico. And in terms of how many conquests, I really like that question because I, I was thinking of conquests in different ways. So definitely conquest is about the domination of one nation in this, in this context over another. But I would also, and that happened multiple times in this period in the 19th century. There was quite a few transitions that happened in this period. But I also like to, to think about um, different kinds of conquests in terms of like a political conquest. That's one thing we can talk about. And certainly that's perhaps what we're most familiar with and that we've sort of um, remembered or has been chronicled more extensively, perhaps, than other kinds of conquests. So a political conquest, a second conquest that I think is important is a cultural conquest. Uh, and a third one, I would even, a little bit further, kind of similar, but I would say a spiritual conquest is also another way we might think about it. Now we back up to talk about the, sp the political conquest Certainly the most famous or most well-known was that same one I alluded to of uh, the American takeover in 1848, which is the conquest of Mexico's Northern territories by the United States carried out through, you know, act, uh, people would, scholars would call it an act of imperialism, an act of, you know, um, undergirded by the ideology of manifest destiny, this idea right, that um, the Americans had the God-given right and that they had, that they were predestined, pre-ordered to sort of expand from one coast to, to the other um, because of the superior um, uh, people, religion, race, and so forth. Um, so that is the political conquest in that sense of the 1848 one. And of course, there's another political conquest of, <clears throat> about in the, uh, that happened, <clears throat> excuse me, um, when Mexico became independent, right, with the Spanish-Mexican period um, in count when they were settling in the northern region or colonizing, we should say not just settling, but colonizing the region. So there was also a Spanish conquest of this region, which um, happened, you know, we can say the Spanish conquest back in the 1550s, right, with, um, when they first colonized. But later, as they moved north, because um, the Spanish authorities remained, held a lot of control in central Mexico, but the northern regions, region that we're talking about there wasn't a lot of control and that happened later until the 1700s and 1800s. And then there's another kind of a conquest there. So those political conquests probably are perhaps um, best known, but I think thinking about the cultural conquest, the question of the Spanish trying to conquer this area, they might've conquered it politically say, oh yes, this is Spanish empire, but culturally did they dominate the native peoples of California? Were they able to dominate um, that particular region in terms of thinking about a, a cultural conquest, I think about the process through which the Spanish authorities attempted to exert control over the region. Right? So we know that, that the, the political conquest was one thing, but to assert control over this region, the Spanish needed to get native peoples, native Californians on board, or at least find a way to integrate them, or we could say a lot of scholars will say, assimilate them into the Spanish ways. Because one of the things that this region, this northernmost region of, of New Spain, which became the U.S. Southwest, was sparsely populated. There's estimates that maybe um, in, in California, you know, at uh, the time of the conquest, there was about 100,000 people. Certainly New Mexico was much more well populated with Native peoples, but generally it wasn't as populated as it was in central Mexico um, at the time of when uh, Hernán Cortés came in, right? 
Um, so the northern region is sparsely populated, and the Spanish are having trouble containing, um, having trouble defending that region from outsiders, from the Americans, from the British, um, or like from the Russians who are coming in and you know exploring, checking out this, what's going on here. And so the Spanish are really attempting to um, fortify that region. And one of the ways that they plan to do that is by converting right, this idea. That's why the missions are there to convert or Hispanicize native peoples to become then Spanish citizens, Spanish subjects who would help defend the region. So the idea is to help uh, to, to help them do that kind of work, to defend it, to populate. So it was a defensive measure in that sense, not just they came militarily, but also to get more people. And so this idea was to convert them right into Spanish subjects. So that's why I'm saying it's a cultural conquest to teach them how to speak the Spanish language, to teach them to live like Spaniards in settled communities, to work by the clock, to follow as long with along with that is to follow Catholic scriptures. So um, you know, a marriage, monogamy, monogamy, um, a family, you know, having that structure, and sexuality, especially like no no sex before marriage. Only sex between you know married couple and a widowhood and it's all these ideas. So that um, the cultural conquest, I think, it was much less successful than people might say the political conquest because you know even how can we measure that? Um, but we know that as soon as the mission system sort of broke up or was broken up, a lot of the, the native Californians um, fled the area. Just those who had survived right the diseases and the death that had that had happened. So um, the cultural conquest then we can might talk about that, like to what extent was that? Um, but that certainly was a way, a tool that was used to try to subjugate the people and try to defend the region. And then that's what I was mentioning about a spiritual conquest. The spiritual conquest is sort of as part of that, but that's more about, you know, to what extent did they, you know, uh, accept Catholicism or accept God the way the Catholics or the Christians were believing in it. So that's another aspect to it I think is, perhaps even less, I think maybe culturally, people would say, okay, they spoke the Spanish language and that's things like that they picked up, like native peoples, like they adopted certain things, but it could be other things where they were even less desirous or less willing to give up, you know? Yeah, well, yeah, and I think, um, I think, you know, the concept that religion is, is separate from institutional or separate from power um, is something that, uh, we bring in with our modern minds, uh, you know, we kind of, you know, we have this concept of separation of church and state. And so I think, you know, the mission system sometimes is in some ways, you know, at least when I learned it in fourth grade in California's curriculum, it's kind of this like, you know, compartmentalized from power in some ways. And you have these little, little, you know, these anecdotes about, you know, you know, cause I mean, if you read Unipro Serra's words, you know, um, and you don't look at the historical context, you might think he's, you know, just this well-intentioned person. And he might've been, uh, but that's, that's beside the point. You know, it's, it's how you're, it's, it's, it's what you're doing and what the effects yeah. are. Um, yeah. And one of the things in his writings, uh, there's a scholar who's done a lot of work, lots of scholars, but one scholar who just looks at all the bickering between him and the and, um, civil officials or, or the military officials, and they're just fighting back. Each of them trying to tell their own story, their own like, no, 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 they're doing this, and they're they're thwarting our efforts here to missionize these, you know, people. And, um, and then they're always pointing out, for instance, Sarah points out a lot about what those soldiers are doing to the women, to the native women, 
they're doing these rapes, they're doing these, you know, violence and, and so forth. So you can get a lot out of it. It's interesting um, to see what each person is doing. So there's a larger set of, as you're saying, power relationships there that need to be looked at. Yeah, it's a fascinating history and it's not one that's, you know, covered as much. I mean, I, I think, you know, obviously it would be tough to, to cover some of those concepts in the fourth grade, um, which is in part why I think, you know, California history should be part of, at least in California high school curriculum. I think that would be an appropriate, you know, context in which to bring it up. But I don't want to go down the pedagogy or curriculum route right now. I want to stay on the our sure. conversation about conquest. Um, and I, I want to there's, I feel like there's this kind of mythos in our culture that things are always getting better. Um, there's this progress, right? Um, but if you actually look at history, it's oftentimes a step forward, a step backwards, a step forward, a step sideways. Um, and so I just want to spend a few moments, because I know you've written about this, talking about how, uh, how women operated in each of these uh, worlds. And I know that there's different different groups um, that we could talk about. We could talk about indigenous people. We could talk about, um, you know, Hispanic people. So the people of Spain that were living in Mexico. Um, but maybe, maybe I'm asking you to make too broad a generalization, but I'm just trying to get a sense of like uh, going from the Spanish period to the Mexican period to the American period, how, how women's worlds changed. Right. Yes. So I will say that first that, between the Spanish period and the Mexican period, right? So the Spanish period we dated from up until 1821 uh, and the Mexican period, 1821 to 1840, there was generally not a lot of changes. Um, the, Span the Mexican authorities inherited and largely kept, uh, uh, you know, unless it wasn't useful to them anymore, <laughs> unless they couldn't get their hands on it in terms of economic things. And that's why a lot of the, the independence was motivated. But we will say, for the most part, for, for women, things pretty much stay the same. And of course, in the northern region that I look at in California, things take a really long time to, to happen, right? So things will happen in central Mexico, but it'll take 10 years, 15, depending um, for changes to happen in the north, largely because communication and distance makes it really difficult for people to hear the latest news and even the latest fashions, you know, there people go up there like, what are you wearing from 50 years ago? Right. So <laughs> yeah. um, they're really behind the times, but nevertheless, one of the way in which that I was able to look at women's position and I'll say Spanish speaking women are women, Hispanic women. We'll just use that very broad category, which may or may not include native California women. Sometimes they do, sometimes they're not, but generally native California women, are pretty much excluded from those circles. Very few Spanish-speaking men marry um, Native women. Like there's a handful of them. Very few, even those incentives to marry them. You know, uh, property incentives. Nevertheless, um, under the and so I use the legal system to look at women's position in the law to sort of compare and contrast what happens to women after 1848, after they the women um, Spanish-speaking women. Um, are integrated or you know sort of pulled into the um, American sort of context. So in the Spanish period, under Spanish law, Spanish civil law, uh, women have actually quite a bit of, uh, just say some uh, uh, power over their property. So women are allowed to hold their own separate property. There's um, a very long and you know complex set of uh, legal treaties known as the Siete Partidas that is where it's all laid out. So women are allowed to keep separate property, which they inherit from their, from their family um, as you know, young women. And they can, you know, uh, they can sell, trade, 
uh, exchange, loan, do all these things with that property in the marketplace, you know, however you want to think of that marketplace. Women also, when they marry, they're allowed to keep that separate property separate from their husband so they can bring it into the marriage and he cannot touch it. Whereas in the American common law system, she has no, you know, the woman brings in property, but the husband takes, you know, um, power over it and she has coverture. That's something in common law that happens. But then in the Spanish civil law, women are able to keep that separate property. And then um, in that same system, uh, when men, women marry men in the Spanish civil law, they also have, they develop common property, right? So property that's between the two of them that they develop. And so one, when either of them die, they're able to then um, transfer that property to whoever they wish, right? Either it gets inherited, uh, they get split to their children equally if they didn't leave a will, but if they leave a will, they can designate where they want the portions. So women did have a lot of um, power in terms of, you know, in the civil uh, legal system. They also could bring men to court. As I write in my book, they could bring the men to court who were not fulfilling their, their duties as men. If they weren't, for, you know, um, helping to feed the household, supporting the household, doing other things, women could then bring him before the court and have the judge then enforce um, his patriarchal duties, right? These women were not necessarily like feminists as we might think of them today. Like they were wanting to overthrow the patriarchal system, but they were trying to make it work for them. Like if you need to, um, but, but I, although I did find a few cases where women simply left their husbands because they thought um, they could do better. So they were kind of, maybe perhaps you might call them proto-feminists there, but nevertheless, um, so that's the Spanish civil law, which I've sketched very, very broadly, where women do have power in the legal sphere of property, business women, especially when they were widows, they could do a lot more with their property, which they did do. Then we have in 1848 or 1850, when California becomes a state, the question then becomes, what about women's property rights? Because in the American common law system, which was going to be established in California, women didn't have that property, didn't have those rights. And so that was a big question, especially in the North, where in the Northern part of the state, where there was very, very few women. And the idea that they wanted to attract lawmakers, wanted to attract more women to the state. And they thought they could do that by passing more, what we may just say generally liberal laws for women, right? And to modify the common law system. And certainly, um, I believe it was in 1857 when the common property was allowed in California. And that was something that had not been in other states. So people, lots of scholars have written about the Hispanic, what they call the Spanish influence in California law. And that's one of them. And the separate property, I think that came in um, in 1850, I can recall. Um, but nevertheless, there were some, um, some changes for women in, in California, allowing them to keep that property. And so that, that was actually beneficial in that case, um, or else it wouldn't have happened that way. So, so yeah, but nevertheless, there was other, besides that point, and besides well, the other change of the legal system for Mexican women is that under the American system, they could now divorce, right? Which they couldn't do under the Spanish civil. Um, they could separate, but that was a Catholic church. So it's got a little bit complicated, but in the American period, they can divorce. So that's something that some women begin to do. Otherwise, everything else was not a good, <laughs> didn't happen in a very, you know, things didn't unfold in a very positive way for most Spanish-speaking women, or especially Native women, after 1850. But if you look at the law, there's some positive things and some, the most simple level, negative things. So I just have to look at it in that case. But um, it's quite interesting. It's different than if you just look at what men, what happened to men. So women have a different situation. Which, which, which kind of leads me naturally to my next question, which is, you know, I, I think about this often as being, you know, 
a, a white male that's doing a, you know, producing a podcast about history. Um, people that look like me have been writing history for, uh, or being the ones that are being published, I should say, uh, most often. Um, and there, there has been a movement to look at history through different lenses um, because we've only had one lens for such a long time, or at least one lens that was emphasized. So why, why do you think it is important to use different lenses, like say a feminist lens when you're looking at history? Um, and what would you say to someone say who would say, well, you know, history is just what happened. It's just one story. It's just what happened. Yeah. Um, there's been some very well-known scholars, very, very well-known who say, well, how does that change anything? Right? How does gender change anything? So yeah. we still, that was a long time ago, but nevertheless, you still have that challenge. So I think taking a feminist, using a feminist lens or using what we say is gender as a historical category, it opens up new avenues of history, new, new ways of seeing things in the past that we have missed that help to answer lots of questions or perhaps pose new kinds of questions that we can um, ask. And I just think it just opens up so many new ways of, of thinking about the past that helps us with our present. Correct. And so this, this idea about power coming, circling back to power, which we talked about earlier. So looking at the relationships between men and women, looking how those are configured, that's sort of a feminist lens. Looking at how power in general operates in different spaces, um, the ways in which uh, uh, certain aspects of society or cultural norms are uh, focused around what is masculinity, how masculinity is defined and how femininity is defined and where there's aspects of um, uh, where power rests with men because of their domination of women, right? And the different ways that that takes place. I think it just opens up. It just opens up so many aspects of history we hadn't thought about and it allows you to tell a story in a new way that you hadn't thought about before. And again, it exposes new things. Um, and so by using gender, not just gender, for me, for feminist approach, it's not just about gender, um, which is about how do we understand what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman, right? So gender is a social construction, how people understand their roles as men and women, as males and females. Not just gender, but I also have to include, I just can't separate it. It's always race, ethnicity, just, um, class, and, and sexuality gets also... So all of these these aspects to me are always sort of one. Like I can't do one without the other. Yeah, I, I agree completely. And I when I tell my students who are a bit younger than your students when we're talking about, you know, seeing history from different lenses, I compare it to like a, a house that looks over a garden. Um, and that in you know, pretend depending on which window you use in the house, you might see a different aspect of the garden. You might see, you know the flowers from up top. You might see the, the stems of the flowers if you're looking on the first floor. But beyond that, from where you're looking, it also depends on what you're looking at. Uh, there's different parts in the garden. Um, you might be focused on one area of the garden and might miss you know, a different side of it. And so I think it's both where you're looking from and also what you're looking at. Mm. And I, you know, That's I a think, nice way to put it. So I, I, um, I think that, uh, you know, it, it has to be both. It has to be, there's got to be people of different backgrounds writing the history, but also focusing on different things. Cause I think, you know, if I look at my history textbook, um, you know, the, the part on the Mexican American war is, a very, is, is very much about, you know, all the political machinations that are going on um, and not really focused on, you know, the effects of war on 
people that were living through it. Um, and so I, yeah, I think it's, I think it's a little bit of both. Um, and I, you know, I want to, I want to just spend a moment. Um, you've kind of covered some eclectic things, um, as a historian. And so I'm, I'm curious both if you could kind of mention, uh, your books on juvenile justice, um, as well as kind of migrant longing, just kind of give a, a, a little bit of like a, a brief overview of what those were. And then talk about being a scholar and writing about such diverse things. Cause I feel like there's a trend, you know, a, a trend in scholarship, right. Towards increasing specialization and focusing on one, one type of material or one type of source or one area and being, you know, I know the most about Martin Luther when he was 35, more than anyone in the world, you know, and, and obviously, you know, I don't want to just hear about when he was 35. I want to hear about his whole life. Um, so if you could talk about those two books and then how, how you do it as a scholar being so diverse in your publishing history. Right, right. Um, it's interesting because students always think we go down rabbit holes, whereas I think we're moving so quickly when we're teaching, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. but um, they get quite bored quickly. But nevertheless, <laughs> so, um, so what's interesting, you know, in, in when I have my reviews and my promotions, I need to step back and think about what I'm doing with my, you know, my writing, my career. And really, I got into history. I'm really interested in, in studying the experiences of those who I think are the most marginalized in society, and of course will have some relevance to my own life, my family's life, my community's experiences. And that's why I focused on Mexican-American history or Chicana and Chicano history. And so my first book was on women in this period, the 19th century, because my grandmother's story sort of, I thought, I looked at her life and I went like, oh my God, how did she survive like on such meager you know, economically, meagerly in these conditions. When we'd go visit to Mexico, I'd see her where she lived and it was like, and so, and then, you know, doing this research, uh, research in the 19th century, these women, there's very little that had been done. And I was thinking, man, my grandmother had it, ha had it bad. How did these women in the 19th century with nothing, right? I mean, all day just to make the supper. Mm -hmm. How did they do it? So that just led me down that rabbit hole, trying to understand their experiences and and also my grandmother and she was in a husband was abusive, you know, patriarchal power. And so that was also another theme that came up in the 19th century. And so it became a real challenge in terms of trying finding sources that spoke to women's experiences, but that made it the all more, you know, fun and, and exciting to do that. And so as I moved on from that project, you know, for one, I like to learn new things. So I had to branch out. I couldn't see myself like, I'm like, I'm done, just get me out of this. You know, I just, and, and I was, where I was located, it just happened to be, I was teaching at UC Davis and so there's state archives. So I went to the state archives, interested in different topics. And I started looking through, I saw there was a set of records around criminal justice, juvenile justice records. I started looking through these big ledgers, these big, I want to say like five inch thick or more big ledgers of, from this institution or Whittier State School which became the Fred C. Nellis Correctional Facility for Boys and then got changed again. Nevertheless, it's the, one of the main institutions, juvenile, state institutions for, for boys. And so I started looking through them. I started seeing all these pictures of boys, uh, these different black and white pictures of all kinds of boys, right? primarily a white boys from all over California. They bought them primarily from Southern California, but a lot from Northern and some from Central California. Uh, and so I was looking at their experiences and I thought, oh, it could be something here. So as I started going through them, I started going through, I just got all of these uh, issues came up that were of interest to me. And again, just going, how did these boys survive? What are their stories? I wanted to tell their stories. 
and there are pictures of seeing these boys. They look like they were, there was one image of a young boy. I think the, the camera had been moved because he looked kind of blurry. But to me, I thought he was crying. I'm like, oh my God, he's crying. What's happened? Like, so I wanted to tell that story. And so that's what led me to that, down that topic. And that, um, that book is called States of Delinquency, Race and Science in California's Early Juvenile Justice System. Uh, and that led me to a whole new set of you know, um, themes and topics like um, eugenics and sterilization and juvenile justice and, and the uh, juvenile court, um, child guidance, all of these really fascinating aspects. And that one looks at the experiences of, of um, Mexican, black and white ethnic youth looking at the experiences there. And um, so I did that book and then thinking about, you know, my, my most recent book on migration, I've been teaching, you know, there's another theme, it's around Chicano and Chicano history that looking at migrants, right, of immigrants, looking at their experiences, again, how, what are their stories, just wanting to tell those stories. And I was fortunate enough that um, my parents were somewhat rat packs, so I didn't know that they were, but um, they wrote letters to each other when they were, my father wrote letters of courtship to my mother in the 1960s. So my father was a fa uh, farm worker. He was part of the Bracero program. He lived in the Imperial Valley in the 50s. He migrated in the 50s and was there through the 60s. Um, and he was from central Mexico, but he, he moved there to the Bracero program. He was working in the Imperial Valley. He would return home once a year for Christmas, like people do. And then he met my mother there. And so when he went back home to Imperial Valley, he then started writing her through these letters of courtship. So it ended up they kept about 80 letters. He wrote 45, she wrote about 35. There's a few missing, but so I had these letters that I was able to use to sort of recreate that experience for them. And then um, from that, my uncle who raised me, after I, after I had went through these and gone through these letters, my uncle who raised me said like, oh, I have letters too. This is my father's younger brother. And I'm like, what do you mean you have letters? You didn't tell me this, you know, eight months later. He has like 200 letters, and these letters are all during the same time period to the same people. And these are letters between my grandfather and my uncle, and my, some between my father and my grandfather, some between my uncle and his girlfriend, who was my mother's older sister. So all of this came together, and I was just able to put together this, these stories about my family, which talk about the longing that migrants had, right? This is their stories, some of their stories. But I tried to say, like, these are broader stories, right? Not just about my family. I didn't want to, you know, make this into this little tiny thing. I wanted to yeah. situate in a broad context and say, these are stories about migration, about what people desire, their hopes, their dreams. They're also perhaps not so good sides. They're, these aren't perfect people. They, heard, they made mistakes. They had jealousies. They, you know, all kinds of things. And so that's what that was about as well. And another sort of special personal aspect to it, too, is that my parents died when I was in, uh, when I was 12. My, we were in a car accident. We were driving back from Mexico during Christmas vacation. And we were involved in a pretty horrific car accident with my brother and I, my parents and my grandmother, my maternal grandmother, the woman who inspired my first book. And they were, all three of them were killed, the elder, uh, older people. And my parent, my brother and I were the only survivors. Oh my God, I'm so sorry. Yeah, and so that experience, I mean, that, you know, through these letters, I felt like I can recreate who they were. I can get to know who they were. And then after I was working on it, I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is too weird. These, these are not my parents. These are young people, you know. Yeah. My mother was 18. My dad was, but he was 30. These are different people, people that I didn't know. But once I caught myself, I said, okay, this, these, I need to just treat these as people. Nevertheless, knowing that connection. But um, that helped me write the book 
quickly because it was just something I wanted to get out. And um, so, yeah, that's, I was able to tell those stories. And, and now I'm working on something new, a new project that kind of brings together a lot of these aspects that I've learned in the past. So, well, so yeah, it yeah. sounds like, and I'm not going to try and give your approach to history a label, but um, when I was in undergrad, I took in part of my general education, I took some, a class, it was a botany class, but the professor was a, a, a mushroom foraging nut. Um, okay. this was, this was at San Francisco state. So every, every nut in the world is a professor at San Francisco state, which makes it a lot of fun. Um, but, uh, you could get extra credit if you went mushroom foraging with him on the weekends. I never did this cause that was a little creepy for me. Um, but, uh, it's, it kind of sounds a little bit like you are kind of a forager. You are going out and you're finding all these sources in these places. Um, and then, extrapolating and expanding upon that to speak about uh, us as a, you know, a human story ultimately, you know, and I, I just think that's a cool way to approach history and a cool way to approach life, you know, cause I, you know, I also, I had to, you know, I relocated to uh, Fresno from kind of the LA area, um, you know, for family reasons. And when I first moved here, I was a little bit, um, you know, I, I mean, like any kind of snobby person that, you know, moves from a city to, you know, kind of rural, you can kind of be a little snobby about it. Um, but I think you just have to approach where you live and what you're given with curiosity, you know, and then you can make, make really, you know, make well with things that others maybe overlook. And so, I, you know, I just, you know, having family that's gone through the juvenile justice system in California, you know, it's, it's, it's really beautiful to tell those stories, um, you know, and, and share, share what happened um, as a kind of a way to end here and bring it back to where you work. You know, this year has been a pretty exciting year for the UC system. Um, you know, it's the first year with the majority Latino or Latinx uh, uh, in, was it uh, incoming class? It was oh, the, yeah, yes. And and then we also have you know the election of uh, 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 Michael Drake uh, as the new president of the UC system. Uh, so it seemingly some things are you know are doing are are going well and exciting or uh, positive changes. Um, but at the same time, you know our state has a lot of you know budget issues and difficulties and you know i foresee that the pandemic is going to make those budget constraints even more strained um and i know that you know there's a lot of universities that are struggling i mean i i heard about i forget where there was is a liberal arts college just shut down and all the professors were out of a job and you know you had these you know 120 uh phd professors looking for work you know and so i think you know, it just seems like a very kind of tumultuous time that we're living in. And I'm just curious from your perspective where you see, because you got positive and you got kind of like what we were talking about before, positive and negative in this in, at the same time. So what, what's your perspective from uh, where you're at in terms of where the UC system is going? Definitely there's been innovation. I think that that's good. I think that people realize that we have to make shifts and people have been adapting. So that's good. I think that I mean, beyond learning Zoom and everything, you know, there's <laughs> yeah. new ways people are thinking. And so we have to do that, I think, in order to survive. But it's still a little 
people, you know, one thing about the university, I don't know if you've asked this question of others, but about these institutions that we take a long time, we're like behind the curve. I mean, we're like 20 or 30 years behind. There could be change in society and yet it's not reflected in the university. Yeah. And I think because, and, um, and I think that because there's a lot of gatekeeping, there's a lot of people who don't want it to change. So that's what I would say. That's the only way I could explain it because I think like, why are we not, why is it so slow? Why is change so slow? But there's people who you have to prove to people, you know, everything. Um, even for simple, the simple fact that your class has more, more student enrollment, there's more demand for your topic. You have to teach it three times. It has to show over enrollment three times, and then they're going to expand it. That's just an example. That could take three years. Yeah. Um, but we quite don't know yet. There's all we know. There's a lot of budget cuts happening. Not people are not being hired. Uh, there's innovation. Search people have had to adapt, or things have slowed down. I think that's like everywhere, right? Everything just takes much longer to do. But I'm still not clear where things are going. So yeah, I think um, I remember I had an interview for a position on campus, a higher level position, and I asked, "What are the challenges and opportunities of the pandemic?" I thought, if I knew, I'd be running this place. <laughs> I'd be like president of the UC system, you know, or the president of the United States. Yes. Oh, the challenges what challenges and opportunities i'm like well some power but it's galvanize that power the one we can really do that is through group like through the activist work that's that's being done so people are they're doing a lot of that and we get a lot of push from our students so the young people always right young people are at the forefront and um and i'm always happy to go along if they push me a little bit but we're still looking and waiting to see what's going to happen a lot of belt tightening, I think, is for sure. I think there'll be some, like I said before, some innovative things come from this. But um, I'm not quite sure yet. Well, that's very yeah, good. I mean, you know, I, I think this is a really silly reference, but, you know, I mean, I think it's Back to the Future 2 where uh, Biff gets the almanac from the 60s or 70s or, or from the future and then can predict all the horse races um, wow. because wildly rich and then, you know, then the, the world just turns into this dystopia. So I, I, I don't know if knowing the future is, you know, is necessarily a good thing or if possible at all. Um, yeah, I'm just, uh, you know, I'm as, as part of public education in California, yeah. you know, I think there's a lot of things that need to change. Um, you know, I think there needs to be innovation, uh, but at the same time, you know, innovation can't help it. It can't happen without money. Uh, and if you cut, if you drain things, um, people are going to leave industries and go other places. So I think innovation can only happen with support and support can only happen with putting, you know, your pocketbook where your mouth is. So I'm hopeful that, you know, even with whatever comes after this uh, pandemic, mm. um, we will not uh, misremember how valuable education is and yeah. how much a part of it, it uh, our success as a state is part of that. Um, you know, our incredible public education system is unrivaled by anywhere. Um, I would much, I'd much rather go to a UC school than an Ivy league any day because yeah. I, because I, I know that my, my tax dollars are paying for it. And I know that, you know, they're not sitting on these 
stupid Princeton size endowments, you know, right. uh, just making money from hedge funds. I, I'm proud of what the UC system is. And I, 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 maybe I should do a commercial for them with what I, the way I'm talking right now. But sure. I think, I think it's just, uh, it's such a cool, it's a, it's a, it's an organization that I'd be proud to work for. And so mm-hmm. even though I'm sure it's can be shitty at times and, you know, no, I'm, I feel so lucky and grateful to be here for sure. One thing I was thinking though, with teaching, I mean, in general, like the public school education, public school system in California, I mean, in anywhere, I think after we go back, everyone's going to be so grateful, you know, because having kids at home and the, you know, doing all that, that's been so hard on everybody. It's just oh, murder, murder. And I think we're so appreciative of our teachers. At least I am. I'm like, please God, let's go back. Well, thank you. And on that note, we will finish there. Thank you to the teachers, including myself. And thank you for coming on and talk to me. I really appreciate it. All right. Great. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the podcast and stay tuned for our next episode where we meet the last Mexican governor of Alta California. Until next time.